HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Alexis Santos, a senior producer at the Feed Feed. The Feed Feed is the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. Here on the podcast, we are speaking with members of the hashtag Feed Feed community to hear their stories, learn about their culinary inspirations, and get some of their best cooking tips. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Brie Baudouin, vegetarian cook, food stylist, creator of the popular blog, Evergreen Kitchen, and brand new cookbook author. Brie's blog and book are bursting with beautiful, flavorful recipes that just so happen to be vegetarian. The recipes provide much-needed inspiration for delicious weeknight mains and a sprinkling of sweet yet scrumptious desserts for those who like to end their meal with something sweet. I'm so excited to learn all about everything you have going on, Brie. It seems like a lot of really cool things. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat today. Yay. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you grew up, where I guess what your heritage is, so I can get a sense of kind of what your culinary background is there. Sure. So I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Cool. My, I'm half Chinese. My mom was born in Hong Kong and she moved to Canada when she was about six. And my dad is French Canadian, but he kind of grew up on the West Coast. So growing up, I ate lots of different foods, lots of whatever's available here in the Pacific Northwest, but also just this blend of my mom's like Chinese heritage and also like a bunch of French or, or Canadian foods. So yeah, yeah, that was quite a mix for sure. Yeah, that is. And I guess that explains the last name that I hopefully yes. didn't butcher. You <laughs> nailed it. It was yes. perfect. Thank you. I was, I was nervous. <laughs> so that explains it. So your dad being on the French Canadian side of things, I guess you, do you speak French at all or do you speak Chinese or what? what is your... I don't, I mean, here in Canada, 
French is our like second language. So going through school, we had to learn it anyways. Um, I would say because my dad grew up kind of on the West Coast, they have like a pretty slang like French to start with. So oh, really? I remember like, yeah, going through school, learning French sounded very different than the French I was used to hearing my grandparents speak. So um, unfortunately, I, I wouldn't say I would be great at carrying a conversation in French. Yeah. And then Chinese, totally fine. <laughs> I did try to learn Cantonese um, when I was younger, but I was not super successful. I think I was kind of started when I was a bit older um, than is ideal. And it, yeah, it was such a difficult language for me to try to pick up. But I wish I could speak it because it would be very helpful. Oh, gosh. No, I agree. And I totally understand. Like I grew up in South Florida where, I mean, I would, I, I don't know if this is an actual fact, but it comes off that more people speak Spanish here than English. And oh, okay. growing up, it's, you know, I don't have Hispanic parents, so I didn't really learn it. I took it in school, but I wasn't taught from a young enough age. And, you know, I didn't move away from here until I was 18. So I kind of was always surrounded by friends whose families were all Hispanic from different countries, because that's just what South Florida is. And yeah, I've always been so mad my whole life that I was not fluent in Spanish. So I totally, I totally feel your pain there. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bummer. So with growing up in Canada with these kind of with this melting pot of influences, was there one side, like say, did your mom do more of the cooking? So you learned more about Chinese cuisine through her or what was kind of that culinary part of your life when you were little with kind of all these influences coming in at the same time? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question growing up. I mean, now I think it's easier to look back on it and be like, oh, okay. And have a greater appreciation for it when you grow mm-hmm. up when as a kid is just like normal for you. Right. I think for me, I kind of, um, it was really a melting pot, as you say. I was a lot of maybe Chinese ingredients or flavors or things that reminded my mom of home, but mm-hmm. in a very reinvented way. Okay. Um, because she moved here when she was so young, I wouldn't say her or I have like a super great understanding of really traditional um, Cantonese cuisine, just because that's not what either of us grew up with. But for yeah. her, you know, she would do a lot of stir fries, but then she'd also stir fry pasta because that's <laughs> what they would have here. So it was a lot of just mixing flavors, mixing ingredients based on kind of what was available. But um, definitely ingredients like ginger, scallions, tofu, um, a lot of kind of, and rice, obviously. Yeah. A lot of those ingredients were pretty staple in my diet. But yeah, she would just like cook things in a very not traditional um, way, which I love it. Now when I'm cooking, it kind of, I don't know, it's freeing. You have flexibility to play with stuff and kind of see what works best for you. So yeah, absolutely. So did you have any, I don't I don't know if, how often you were able to see your grandparents on your mom's side, but I would assume since she moved over here, they might have more of a I guess, culinary, you know, skill set with the Chinese food. Is that something you got to experience with them or were they kind of too far away at that point? Oh, for sure. So they moved here as well. So oh, um, and they took care of us quite a bit when we were little. So there's actually a recipe in the cookbook that was inspired by my grandma. It's a sheet pan recipe that's called firecracker tofu. Ooh, that sounds um, delicious. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, it's basically... Um, crispy tofu that's been baked in the oven and broccolini um, and then this um, chili garlic oil that's been mm. infused. And so you kind of heat that up and then you drizzle that over everything with rice. Um, so yeah, my grandma would always 
heat up different ingredients in oil and then we'd spoon that over rice or fish or whatever she was serving. So that was kind of inspiration for that recipe. Cool. That sounds awesome. And then did you pick up on French? I I, I know it's not traditionally French, obviously it's French Canadian and it's more kind of like poutine and stuff like that versus escargot and the more traditional things that you find in France. But how did that kind of influence your culinary education from growing up over there? My grandma um, on my dad's side, she was definitely like the first person who introduced me to baking. She made a lot of pastries from scratch, a lot of desserts, pies, breads, all those kinds of things, which was awesome because baking isn't something that my mom's side of the family would do a lot of. So I kind of, um, a lot of the dessert influences and I love sweets. So that kind of definitely came from um, the French Canadian side of my family. For sure. Yeah. And so when did you start realizing that you had a passion for cooking and food? Oh, from a very, very young age, I was always obsessed with food as long (laughs) as I can remember. I think I asked my mom about this recently. I think I was about four and I got a, oh, what was it? It's a, what was that oven? An easy bake? Easy bake oven. Oh, yes. yes. Um, So I got that. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And I, I think it was brownies was probably the first thing I ever baked. This like powdered mix that you bake, you know, under a light bulb. So those couldn't have been great, but that was my start. Um, And then ever since then, I was always tinkering. I think it started with baking more so than cooking when I was younger, just because it was easier to follow a recipe than kind of understand the, you know, with a lot of savory cooking, you kind of it's more adaptable and you can like kind of do things on the fly. But I think when I was really young, that was kind of a harder concept for me. So I loved baking when I was younger. Um, And then kind of have always been involved with food since then. (laughs) Good. So (laughs) no, go ahead. My favorite childhood book was like, uh, they were always ones where food was like a topic. um, Oh, yes. Wait, did you read that little book where it was like the little cat that would bring sushi to school? Did you happen no, to read that book? No, I haven't read that. No, but that sounds fun. <laughs> that was definitely my favorite. And then do you remember the one where like they make us – they're making a sandwich and there's something – maybe there's bugs in the sandwich? I okay, don't know. that one like- sounds familiar. There's another one with dogs that would make some strawberry shortcake or something. That was okay, one yeah. of my favorites. And then this <laughs> other one called Chocolate Island, which was this whole adventure that these two kids go on this magical – island that's all chocolate and candy so that was okay one of my favorites too that sounds like an absolutely ideal book and it sounds like we're on the same page with our childhood books (laughs) (laughs) I was definitely very 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 into the same type of books the ones that had food and like that was the story or like the hungry hungry caterpillar and like all of those so it's so funny how you have like that passion when you're so young and then somehow we're like still in that today so I think that's pretty cool (laughs) No, <laughs> that is very, very delightful to hear that we have that in common. <laughs> so did you, I, we mentioned that you're a food stylist, which mm-hmm. is a very, there's a lot that goes into that. You know, me being in this industry myself and moving over to this industry about three years ago was when I started in food media. I was a TV news reporter before that. Oh, so nice. from the outside of not being 
in food media and just kind of thinking like, yeah, you know, they make recipes and post about it and yay. But as you and I both know, there's so much more that goes into it and planning and skill set and so much that just like the expertise that goes behind that. So did you, what was this journey of you, I guess, being a food stylist? Did you go to school for that? Did you work in that industry for a long time before you started the blogging or what was that kind of path for you? Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned, I've been, I loved food growing up. I didn't really know how I wanted to make it a career because I knew that I didn't really want to work in a traditional restaurant kitchen. Um, I love food. I just knew that that lifestyle wasn't for me. So I actually went to university for business and sociology. So (laughs) right after school, I ended up working for a consulting company and was mostly working with food and restaurant brands mm-hmm. um, and like food manufacturers. So we would um, basically advise all of these different brands on growth strategies. A lot of my job was performing consumer research. So I'd go through all these different cities in the States and run kind of consumer insights um, interviews and think like focus groups and things like that to learn more about consumers. And a lot of this was kind of for pretty big brand um, chains of like restaurants, coffee companies and things like that. So it was attached to food, but it was not really working with my hands. I wasn't really the person, you know, really working with food every day. You're talking about food and coming up with these cool products and strategies, but it just was a little bit different from what I saw myself doing in the long term. So, but as part of that, you are, um, you do get exposure to different brand campaigns and things like that. So you could, I could see a lot of different agencies um, involved in the creative and kind of got a peek into kind of how food shoots and things like that would run. Right. So I made a career change. I moved at that time, I was living in Toronto in Canada, but mostly traveling in the States. Um, But I wanted to move back to Vancouver to be closer to family. So when I moved back to Vancouver, I started the blog and um, also studied nutrition. And then through there, kind of like made friends in that space. And one of my friends, um, Gabriel Cabrera, he was actually a food stylist transitioning into food photography. And So I kind of, I guess, got introduced to it that way where I kind of started to take over and help um, do the food styling for some of his photography shoots. And then um, obviously was getting a lot of practice through the blog and doing things like that. And thankfully in Vancouver, there's quite a bit of um, a film industry here and also still. So yeah, it's kind of grown over the years. and, And now I do a lot more food styling work freelance for different TV commercials and restaurant menus and restaurant shoots and kind of any other photo shoot that would involve food in some way. Yes. Amazing. So it seems like it kind of all goes hand in hand with like the blogging and the cookbook and kind of everything you have going on. So I think that's, that's cool. Yeah. The blog really started at the time as like a passion project. When I moved to Vancouver, I, my husband and I wanted to try eating more vegetarian. And so we started the blog as a way to share the vegetarian recipes that we were cooking mm-hmm. at the time. Um, it's gotten so much better now, but at the time there really wasn't a ton of amazing options for vegetarian 
dining out and restaurants. And so we found ourselves cooking a lot more at home. And the blog was a way for us to kind of record some of those recipes that we were cooking and sharing with our friends. Um, And yeah, over time, our readership grew to be not just people that you know, we personally knew um, to a, a bigger community online, which was awesome. And and through that, yeah, it kind of grew into the opportunities for more recipe development, um, more freelance photography and styling, and then eventually the cookbook. Amazing. That's so cool. So how long have you been vegetarian? Um, since, uh, I want to say 2015. Okay. When I grew up, I my parents both like cooked meat, but we didn't have a ton of meat. Um, so it, for me, it wasn't, I mean, it did feel like a change going to be vegetarian, mostly because I was worried about the impact it would have, like going out to eat and um, going over to friends' places for dinner, just because eating such like social activity, I didn't know how restrictive that would be. Um, it would turned out better than I thought, which is great. And I'm still eating vegetarian today. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, it was definitely, I think for my husband, it was a bigger change at first because he grew up eating a ton of meat um, when he was younger, but he was very excited to try it. So I figured (laughs) I wasn't going to cook two separate meals, so I might as well do it as well. Yeah. So how has it been going for you? Is this kind of, obviously you wrote a whole cookbook about it. So it seems like this has become a big part of your, you know, content and recipe development and yeah, how is that going for you? Yeah, it's been fun. It's um I would say like writing the cookbook and similar to the blog, I find what's most fun is cooking for not vegetarians actually. So we like what our blog Evergreen Kitchen really focuses on is making dishes or like specifically mostly dinners, but things that everyone at the table can eat. I mean, most of our friends are not vegetarian. Most of our family is not vegetarian. So it's really fun trying to come up with recipes that um, everyone is excited to eat. Yeah, that's amazing. So why is it kind of important for you? Are you kind of trying to open up people's minds to vegetarianism and just kind of showing them that, you know, if you make these recipes, you won't miss the meat or what is kind of your goal with like the cookbook and everything that you're trying to share? Yeah, I think the goal with the cookbook um, is, and it's really just like an extension of, of the blog in the sense that I think there's a lot of interest or vegetarian or veggie curious people out there, not necessarily ones who want to eat vegetarian 100% of the time, but maybe you want to incorporate one vegetarian meal a week or once a month, or maybe you just have someone coming over who's vegetarian and you don't know what to make. That's kind of the place that I see our cookbook fitting is helping give inspiration to those kinds of people. I say it out front in the book, like I'm not going to try to convince anyone to be a vegetarian. I think how you eat is a totally personal choice and it's different for everyone and what works for me might not work for you. So it's really about inviting everyone to the table, like making people excited about trying something vegetarian, but not making it feel like that's how you need to identify or mm-hmm. eat vegetarian 100% of the time. Like it's really whatever works for you. Amazing. All right. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, 
they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. So what was it like for you to kind of become a cookbook author? I know it's a huge, huge undertaking. So what was that process like for you? It was fun. It was a whirlwind and it's a lot of work. I think, thankfully, because I work as a freelance food stylist, I've worked on a lot of other cookbooks before, um, mostly from the visual standpoint. So from the food styling, prop styling, um, and all of that. So with a typical cookbook, a lot of times the author will write the book, they'll develop the recipes, and then they'll outsource the photography and the styling piece of things. And that usually gets done in, you know, one, two or three week shoot, depending on how many photos are needed. So I had a sense um, from that standpoint on the photo shoot side of things, but um, the actual process of writing and editing and all of that was definitely a newer experience for me, which was a lot of fun. But the the journey is, I think it was about three, it'll be three years from when we oh first gosh. got into conversations about writing the cookbook to to it being published. So it's quite a long process. Oh my gosh. So how does it feel that you're finally at the end of the tunnel? Good. It, it feels different. It feels a bit weird because we're kind of in the period right now, the book will be coming out on October 18th. So at least at the time of this recording, there's like a couple weeks to go before it comes out. So it's a lot of excitement, a lot of nerves. I mean, you, you really pour your heart and soul into it and want everyone to to love it. So I think it's right now, it's just the anticipation of waiting and hearing what the reactions are for that. Oh my gosh. Well, congratulations on kind of getting that out into the world. I know it's a really, really big deal and it's not easy. So I mean, yeah, just good on, good for you for kind of making it happen and doing all that. I'm very excited to see it. Yeah. I mean, it takes, it takes a village. It's a huge team that goes behind it and a lot of hours and love. Um, from everyone from the publishing standpoint to our recipe testers to anyone who really helped um, put this book together or give us feedback. So yeah, I we're really appreciative of everyone's help uh, to make it happen. Yay. So what are kind of your goals moving forward at this point? I know this is a huge accolade for you in your career. Um, I guess, where do you, what do you hope to see from here? Yeah, that's, I think, um, on a freelance standpoint, I'm continuing to with the food styling, so doing a lot more of that, which is great. Um, and then on the blog standpoint, continuing to publish recipes to the blog and grow it there. And then on the cookbook and recipes development, we definitely ha- have plans to be doing more projects where we share kind of compilations of recipes. So it's I don't want to say it's more of the same, but a lot of cooking and a lot of recipe development and just connecting with others who are cooking our food. Amazing. And so as, you know, this is all career focused stuff, but when you're, you know, living day to day, what does like a typical dinner look like for you in your Uh, house? (laughs) Great question. I don't know if we have like a typical dinner. It really depends on 
um, what our workday looks like. So a lot of times if I'm on a TV commercial set or a photo shoot set, a lot of times we wrap pretty late. So sometimes um, I might eat at dinner at work, but if I make it home for work, then usually we'll just throw together a pretty quick and easy meal on a weeknight um, using whatever we have in the fridge. And then weekends, I like to take more time usually to, if we're having friends over to make something special for that. Yeah. So that's kind of funny. I feel like whenever I interview you know, bloggers, content creators, it's, I mean, kind of all of us are in the same boat where it's like you work with food all day. By the time you get to the point where it's making dinner for yourself, it's like, ah, let's just do the easiest thing. There is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, I think too. And you probably have the same experience, but a lot of people say to me like, oh, I mean, say we're doing, say I'm working on a commercial for like cookies or something. People are like, oh my gosh, you must be hungry for cookies like all day. And it's this weird thing for me where it's like, I'm not because I'm working with them all day. And it's kind right. of like your like art, like work, it's your job. So you're just like, yeah, you're dealing with so many of them. So yeah, usually the last thing I'd want to eat at the end of that day is like cookies. Um, yes. So yeah. <laughs> so a lot of our meals are kind of dictated by that. Like what, what have I dealt with all day? And what's the complete opposite thing that I'm excited to eat? Yeah, no, I totally, totally get it. It's just like, you're almost too close to it. And it's like, you're not in a position when you're working to kind of like, sit down and enjoy the food. If anything, yeah. you're like, you know, it's just you're in work mode. You're not really yeah. in enjoyment mode. Yeah. So eating something delicious when you're like, you know, standing on your feet for hours at a time and like the food's cold or like, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's just not the vibe. Totally. <laughs> so as a food stylist, I guess, what are some major tips? I know it's probably, you can get very, very deep into this because you have a lot of expertise in this, but for people who, you know, are dabbling with making their content look better? Or like, what are some of the like, immediate top level pieces of advice you give people who want to get better in that area? Sure. So I mean, there's a lot you can do on the styling standpoint, obviously, like lighting and angle and all of those things on how you capture the actual photo are super important. And I'm not going to pretend to be a photographer here. So I'll leave that part to the experts. But from a styling standpoint, for me, I always like to think about colors of the dish. And a lot of times if the food doesn't have a lot of color, you know, we're kind of going into fall and winter where there's a lot of brown food, um, mm -hmm. which is notoriously difficult to make look cute in photos. So I always like to think about what are some garnishes or ways that I could add color to the dish. So is it a bunch of fresh herbs on top? Or um, even if you want to drizzle some oil or add chili flakes or any kind of thing to help make it look prettier, that always is a win. Um Obviously, if the food is fresh and hot, it's going to look better than if it's been sitting around for a long time, which I know is not really what people like to hear when they're photographing their food because sometimes it is really <laughs> it takes cold. a while. Yeah. Um, so I think that it's always valuable to try to invest the time in setting up your angle and making sure you're happy with the rest of the scene before you rush and bring the hot food out. So like on an actual photo shoot, a lot of times I would provide a stand-in, which is like not 
the real hero item, but something that's like a similar size so that you can, so we can kind of style the scene and make sure we're happy with everything before we actually bring the real food item. Because sometimes I think what people do is like they'll put their plate of food down and then they don't like what else is happening in the scene. So they'll start like playing around with that. And then your food is kind of just getting sadder and sadder looking as it sits, you know? So <laughs> um, no, that's but, yeah. definitely good advice. I appreciate it. <laughs> and what else? I would say, I mean, it's definitely personal preference. I love that the industry is like with visuals and food is kind of going to a more natural feel as opposed to things feeling super perfect and almost like right. bridging on fake. Um, yep. So I love that because that's like more my style anyways. Um, so I would just say like not to overthink it. Sometimes your best food photos are like when the food just like looks natural and you kind of just put it down. Sometimes if you kind of play with the food too much and try to make it look too perfect, it just, it doesn't look as appetizing. So yeah, keep it simple. So, <laughs> I It's obviously very interesting, like that shift that you're talking about moving from kind of the very super stylized, you know, overhead gorgeous photography, food styling style that was really popular in social media. Now it's kind of the opposite where it's yeah. kind of, you know, just make it feel real and relatable. Has that been kind of an interesting shift for you as someone who kind of was more on the, I guess, older school side of things with like food styling and photography and all that? I think like when it comes to food styling, um, because I am like, you know, there's been people who've been food styling for longer than I've been alive. So yeah. um, like, I'm not going to take that away from them. Like they've had so much experience. I think people like that, like the industry vets have definitely seen trends come and go. Um, but a lot of those stylists would have been around at a time where the style for food styling was much more rigid or perfect looking. Um, for me, because I actually came from like having a background in like the blogging side of things, I would say my styling is like a bit, a, a bit more loose or natural just to start with. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess on the scale of things, I probably am like pretty, we call it like relaxed, but yeah. like pretty loose <laughs> styling um, on that side of things. So it hasn't felt like too much of a change for me and my preferences. But what it does mean is when I go on to other jobs, the clients or the agency are kind of wanting that more natural style. So it it's great for me because that's kind of part of the briefing. And then I can really lean into what I love to do best for that. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, I haven't really heard, I mean, obviously I know I'm very familiar with the shift as it pertains to video, but I have not really been super privy to it as it pertains to photo because yeah. I just, I'm not, I personally find it a lot easier to capture gorgeous looking food that's moving versus right. the, it yeah. being still. So that's like a completely different expertise. So it is yeah. very it's interesting true. to hear about that. And I think because there's so much more video now, though, it is also in some ways informing how like the style for stills, because yeah. I think they kind of go a little bit hand in hand, just in the sense of now during a lot of shoots, both of those at like both of those formats are being captured as part of the same campaign. So you don't really want them to feel disconnected in that way. Um, and because so much of the way people consume food media now is on video. Yeah, I think it's it's not surprising that it's 
bleeds into stills as well, just the general feel. Um, because it would look a bit weird if, you know, you see the food one way in video and it looks like completely different in stills. So I think right. for, as brands start to get clearer with their like video and still strategy, having more like continuity between them will make sense for, for a lot of brands. Interesting. Okay. Well, and then has it been kind of, how has it been for you kind of having to transition a bit into the more like video side of things as it pertains yeah. to food styling? Yeah, it's very different. Um, styling for video and styling for stills. I think um, styling for video for like TV commercials or bigger shoots, you know, that doesn't feel that different. I think what really feels different is um, video for social platforms. Um, which is something that a lot more brands and obviously bloggers are are doing. That piece specifically feels quite different because of just how quick everything is. There's a lot of different, like with a still, for example, you can invest a lot more time in that one photo. But when it comes to video, or if you're making a reel or you know something else, you need so many different angles, so many different shots, and they're all really fast cuts. Yes. So it's like a totally different pace for shooting and frankly, how much styling you can do um, for that. So it's it's a lot less styling in some sense while you're actually um, shooting the video just because like you can't have hands in there and all of right. that. Um, but more prep, I would say, sometimes um, for video just to make sure you have everything ready to go and then backup options if you need. Gosh, yeah. And it's a whole thing. It's like yeah. such a, an ordeal these days. So yeah. I mean, I totally get it. It's yeah, it's something else. <laughs> yeah, it's fun though. I, I love it. It's exciting. I think I love the part about video is it's a different approach to storytelling. And yeah, you really have to have your storyboard or like the story clear, I think, before you start shooting sometimes. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, Whereas sometimes for stills, I think you just have a little bit more time in the actual moment to to craft what that photo looks like. And video, you just like, it's like sprinting the whole time, it feels like. Yeah, <laughs> I totally get it. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm sure I could talk to you all day about this, but <laughs> was there anything major important about your vegetarian lifestyle and your book coming out and all these big things that I haven't asked you yet? No, I mean, on the book side of things, it's focused completely on vegetarian dinners, which I think mm-hmm. um, that was another thing when you were talking earlier about like the process of writing the cookbook. I, A lot of the cookbooks that I've worked on in the past are kind of a little more traditional in the sense that they'll have some like drinks or some snacks or appetizers and all these different dishes. Um, but writing a whole book on dinner recipes was definitely this extra challenge because they are typically like heartier or more filling recipes. Like you're probably only just going to make a main for dinner on a weeknight as opposed to, you know, a quick little, I don't know, dip and crackers. That's probably not going to like suffice for dinner. So that was fun and a challenge. Um, So the cookbook, instead of being divided up by um, breakfast, lunch, dinner, it's actually divided into different categories of dinners. So we have like a whole chapter on noodles, soups, um, comfort foods, bowl foods, a whole chapter on sheet pans or like one pot recipes, and then handhelds, which are like sandwiches and burgers and salads. And then because I have a sweet tooth, we talked about that a bit earlier, yes. there's some desserts in there as well, um, kind of quick ones that would that would work for a weeknight. 
So cool. Well, what a good idea and like what a very like pertinent and helpful, you know, just recipe book for people. Like it just seems yeah, it seems like that's that's you're doing God's work, giving the people what they need. <laughs> yeah, like we we really hope people um pick it up and try it and like get excited about cooking some vegetarian recipes. For us, almost all the recipe testers for the book actually weren't vegetarian. Um because oh, really? we wanted to make sure that they were recipes that like everyone would love to eat for dinner. So yeah, it was feedback we actually got through the blog is it most of our readers don't actually identify as vegetarian. They just mm-hmm. are interested in cooking something vegetarian sometimes or there's a person in their family that's vegetarian and they don't want to cook multiple versions of a dish um, for everyone. So yeah, that's really what we were hoping to cover in our cookbook. And so hopefully people kind of find that helpful. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you so much for telling me all about this and sharing your background and your story and, you know, inspiring me to try vegetarian food and all these awesome things. So I I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. If you have a food story to tell or want us to interview a blogger, cookbook, author, chef, or restaurateur, we would love your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.